You know, sometimes there are events in the life of the church or the community that are so profound, so life-altering, that, that a sermon that ignores them feels like the preacher is somehow cheating the congregation, avoiding the critically important point that everyone needs to hear, maybe hiding it in the gospel somewhere. I imagine just over 19 years ago, many of you heard sermons reflecting the national cataclysm that were the 9-11 tax attacks that forever changed our nation. Changed us so much that you still know what I am referring to a generation later. I know I did, and, and that sermon was a temporary balm to my hurting soul. In November of 2016, the interim rector at the church I served, St. James in Austin, Texas, made a decision to ignore the previous week's presidential election results. Nearly half of that still scarred, multi-ethnic, and also deeply progressive community walked out at the passing of the peace. He never forgave himself for making that decision, claiming his own shock was still so great that he couldn't formulate words. And rest assured, this won't happen again. And on a lighter note, how many preachers spent a Saturday night in May 2018 hurriedly rewriting their sermons after seeing our own presiding Bishop Curry animating the royal wedding of Meghan Markle and Prince Harry, commenting on the way he rocked around the podium or proclaiming the power of love? He also shocked some stuffy British royals who, who, with his claim to get these kids married. A good preacher could not not refer to him at that time. You see, sometimes life intervenes into our orderly lectionary schedule, and our job here at the pulpit is to try to make sense of it all through the lens of the readings and through the gospel, which is where I find myself today, speaking before you. But it's hard. Last Sunday, we gathered still shocked by the loss the day before of our deeply, deeply loved Reverend Dr. Linda Brown. Now, the more, majority of you who watch our 11 a.m. broadcasts, and since we pre-record on Fridays, didn't hear Linda's name in our prayers for the departed. You might have noticed and wondered about that apparent oversight. But the 43 brave souls who joined us for our first live regathering since March in the courtyard heard Peggy read Linda's name and also joined us as Dr. Stroud rang the church bell 73 times, one for each year of the remarkable Linda's life. And even though Linda last served here in person last December, Peggy and I and, and many, many of you as well felt her continued presence during these recent months of physical absence. Her spirit of love compassion, and counsel in difficult times hovered over us all the time. And most of all, her laughter and her lyrical music voice rang above the din of the noise when we were able to be together, and especially and even louder in the silence that marks the church during this time of being closed. Now, you might say I was in denial, but, but in my heart, I felt that as long as Linda was still with us, even though she was miles away, she was still fully present among us in our worship, still helping us knit 
the very fabric that is the community of St. Peter's, still making us laugh, even when we felt like crying during the months of pandemic and uncertainty. On Tuesday, and still in something of a state of shock, Peggy and I visited Linda's wife, Lee, in Bentonville. Waves of sadness rushed over the three of us, but it was nice to be together. Peggy and I found ourselves at a loss for words for the first 30 minutes or so as Peggy drove us back to Conway and, and away from Lee and away from Linda. You see, it's weeks like these when profound change sinks in that I wish we were like our Baptist or Methodist counterparts. When we could skip over the lectionary readings, those readings chosen for us by a well-meaning but ignorant group of unknown scholars, and choose our own scripture. Something tailor-made today for remembrance and for healing. I mean, how does a silly psalm reading like today's about mountains skipping like rams help us? How does one that dares to open with a cry of hallelujah help us in a time of grief? How does that meet the moment we're facing? If I could choose the scripture, I'd sooner opt for the comfort of Ecclesiastes 3, which we all know by heart, or for those of us old enough to remember, from a song by the folk group, The Birds. For everything there is a season, and a time for every matter under heaven, a time to be born, and a time to die, a time to plant, and a time to pluck up what is planted, a time to kill, and a time to heal, a time to break down, and a time to build up, a time to weep, and a time to laugh, a time to mourn, and a time to dance, a time to throw away stones, and a time to gather stones together, a time to embrace, and a time to refrain from embracing, a time to seek and a time to lose, a time to keep and a time to throw away, a time to tear and a time to sow, a time to keep silence and a time to speak, a time to love and a time to hate, a time for war and a time for peace. Now, wouldn't that be a scripture that would preach one that would start the heal, to heal the chasm in our hearts that is missing Linda. Can weep. We can laugh. We can understand the loss of Linda as a part of the eternal wheel of, low, of, of life. And in that, we can find hope. But no, we're not given a class D's, Ecclesiastes. Instead, we're faced with Matthew and, and Jesus' repeated insistence on forgiveness. Not 77 times, but 70 times seven, 77 times, which basically means forever. He follows it with a parable of the unforgiving servant. The master forgives his, the unimaginably great debt that he has, and then the servant turns around and refuses to extend the same mercy to another slave who owes him, a, by comparison, a relatively small sum. The merciless servant grabs him by the throat, and insists on complete repayment. I imagine a scene from something like a 1940s gangster film where the mafia boss lifts the poor soul up against the wall by his neck and says, you're going to pay me, see? Pay me what you owe. You got that? It would be a frightening scene. 
as we identify with his beleaguered debtor's fear and pain. Jesus redeems us, though. The righteous king has the unforgiving servant taken away and tortured until he repays his impossibly huge debt in full. Evil has been avenged. Good triumphs. But, but wait, wait a minute. Our comfort is quickly upended as Jesus makes clear that we'll face the same destiny if we don't forgive at least 77 times. If we don't forgive our brother or sister from our heart. A critical message. And it continues Jesus' commands over these past Sundays for absolute forgiveness and for unity above all. And Paul's letter to the Romans that we heard today expands this call for unity. After the past several weeks' readings of Paul's lyrical claims for togetherness and forgiveness, today's reading brings us back to Paul's sometimes confusing words. Maybe it's too specific to Paul's time and place, but, but what exactly does he seem to have against vegetarians? I mean, some people, some believe in eating anything while the while the weak only eat vegetables? Is he against a healthy lifestyle? Is he worried they aren't getting enough protein in their diets? Now, in the larger context, Paul is echoing Jesus' call for unity above all, this time directed to the divided community in Rome, where some are following Judaic law to such an extreme that they are avoiding any meat, lest it not be kosher. And he points out other divisions, keeping the Sabbath, judging each other, and so forth. And some of these divisions still speak to us today. Judging others, for example. I mean, we see your Facebook posts. Paul's call for unity is incredibly important and under normal circumstances would be fully the focus of our work and our sermon today. But where do we find a bit of solace for the loss we feel without our deacon Linda right here, right now? How does Paul meet us here today in grief? Yet there it is, buried in verse 7. We do not live to ourselves, and we do not die to ourselves. If we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. I get to think of nobody who more fully lives to the Lord than the Reverend Dr. Linda Brown. As close as I can tell, she completely lived a gospel-shaped life. Now, she had scoffed at the notion and, and quick, quickly point out how many times she felt short. But really, who better embodies love, caring, and passion for the Word than Linda does? As Ecclesiastes tells us, there will be a time to mourn and a time to dance. The Reverend Peggy and I are working on a time for us all to remember Linda in person and via Zoom and somewhere in the near couple of weeks. And we'll have a proper memorial here as well. Plus, there's a celebration of her life planned for April of next year when it's hoped, I hope, we hope, we'll be able to gather together shoulder to shoulder in the joy of celebration. Trinity Cathedral promises to be packed with those across the state and elsewhere who were, like us, deeply, deeply touched by Linda. There will be dancing and laughing and embracing. And Linda will be there, watching and laughing right along with us. 
And we'll know it. Who can forget Linda's wonderful laugh? We live to the Lord and we die to the Lord. Linda's out of pain. Linda's at peace. Ever the educator, I think she's telling us right now to listen. Listen to Jesus. Listen to Paul. Listen closely. Forgive. Put unity above all division. Live to the Lord. And above all, laugh. Because in our laughter, we may surprise ourselves and finally find ourselves fully the Lord's. Let's hope so. Amen.